0: Hello there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our production and outreach director, Matt Walker. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! Today we are um, walking through the Gospel of John in the series Rediscover Jesus and kind of The premise of it is that uh, it's been a kind of crazy past 12, 13, 14 months, hasn't it? And we've kind of lost focus on who is the king over it all and who Jesus is. And so we're just going to kind of go through this gospel and we're going to learn more and more about the personality of Jesus. But today I want to start by talking about superstitions. All right, superstitions, these things that kind of, they're in every single culture that kind of they're, they're funny little things that give us either good luck or bad luck, right? Superstitions. And we have a lot here uh, in the United States. And, you know, I'm not one that really believes in, in good luck or bad luck or good juju or anything like that. Um, but sometimes I act like I do, right? Sometimes I act as though I believe in superstitions. Huh? There's, a great, there's a great quote from The Office where Michael Scott says, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious," Right? Uh, And so I just want to talk about a couple little superstitions here today that undoubtedly you've heard of, right? Um, So uh, who's ever heard of that when a black cat crosses your path, it's bad luck, right? That's a common one, right? Um, When I moved into um, the townhouse that I live in right now down in Dallas, um, it was kind of the end of summer into fall. And one day I got home from work and there was this black cat just sitting on my stoop just sitting at my door, and it was, it was kind of an overcast day, and the trees were kind of craggled, and I'm like, I don't believe that black cats are bad luck, but you know, go on, go, shoo, please, shoo. Um, and I guess it would depend on whether or not you're a cat person or not, right? Like some of you guys are like, yeah, cats, <laughs> no, worst of luck, but other, some of you guys are like, I love cats. My friend Catherine, she's actually here today. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> um, she has a black cat that she loves to death. And I'm sure she would say that uh, black cats are, are the best of luck. In fact, I asked her, I didn't tell the first service, but I asked her if I could use her cat as an example in this little illustration. And I said, I'm going to talk about how black cats are seen as bad luck. And she actually replied to me, no, they're precious babies. <laughs> like, how could you say that? So black cat, right? Not necessarily bad luck, but sometimes we act like they are. Superstition. Uh, what about this one? If I say something I wish wouldn't happen, I knock on wood, right? Where does that even come from? What does that mean? Why do we knock on wood for good luck? Actually, I was doing some research for this, and I found out that in early Christianity, there were some churches that were popping up around Europe, and they believed that they had fragments of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And that they had chipped off little bits of it and delivered it to different churches. And so they believed that by tapping on the piece of the cross, they would receive a blessing. And so over time, that morphed itself into, well, you knock on wood and it's good luck. So you can see kind of where that comes from. Um, what about this one? I'm going to say, I'm going to start a phrase and you give me the last line, okay? Find a penny, pick it up, and all day, you'll have good luck. Have good luck. What is intrinsically lucky? about picking up a penny, other than the fact that you are now one cent richer than you were before you encountered the penny. Yes. Nothing much, right? Like, there's not much to that. Um, in fact, to show you just kind of how flexible these superstitions are, when I was a kid, we went a little bit further and said that if you do find a penny in its heads up, that's the good luck. If you find one in its tails, oh, <laughs> you better leave it alone because that will bring about bad luck. But really, what is intrinsically lucky or unlucky about pennies, right? Superstition, and that's all it really is. Some superstitions, they are loosely kind of based in truth. Some of them are loosely, might even have like a Christian origin, right? So let me ask you this. If I were to do what I'm about to do, how would you respond? Achoo! Thank you. So. Uh, where does bless you come from? Well, in some parts of the world, um, when someone sneezes, they have an equivalent of bless you. And what they're actually believing is that when you sneeze, you are expelling evil spirits. And so obviously, the response is to bless you. But um, we can find kind of the English roots of this from uh, the sixth century Italy, um, believe it or not. Um, at that time, there was a terrible plague sweeping across Italy. And I know we, don't, we can't relate to that at all, right? Like, that's not something that we know anything about. Um, But so one of the first symptoms of this plague was uncontrollable sneezing. It was something that would just happen, and um, that's the first symptom. And the second symptom was death, right? So that's how this plague worked. You sneezed, and then you were dying. And so at the time, uh, Pope Gregory actually said, listen, if there's someone in your life that is sneezing, then um, you're to bless them, pray for them. Because we know how dangerous this plague is, and so if someone is sneezing, your response to them should be, God bless you, because you never know if that sneeze is going to be their last. And um, that's where bless you ends up coming from in our English language. Um, it's funny, though, too. Uh, Pope Gregory actually also said that if you're by yourself and you sneeze and there's no one around, you can, like, bless yourself if you want to. So um, there's, there's, there's bless you, right? Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I go through a lot of other things kind of on a daily basis that needs more blessing than me sneezing. I'm not really concerned about sneezing, but you know, it's a, it's a different time for different people. Um, the number 13, oh no. The number 13 is considered to be the unlucky number. Um, why is that? Uh, did you know that in Japan, um, certain skyscrapers when they're built, um, they go from the 11th floor to the 12th floor to the 14th floor? In the 15th floor, they don't want that number 13 on there. And that's something that's kind of been globalized, hasn't it? Where does that come from? What is so intrinsically unlucky about the number 13? What actually finds its roots in Norse mythology, believe it or not, Um, in in Norse mythology, um, kind of the head honcho of the Norse gods was Odin. And Odin invited 12 smaller gods to a dinner party. It's like, hey, guys, come over. We're going to have a big time. And, um, you know, they they drank big things of beer and ate big turkey legs because that's just what I imagine Vikings doing. I'm not an expert, but they're there, and then suddenly an uninvited guest shows up. Loki, the chaos troublemaker god, shows up, and he's like, <laughs> and starts causing trouble, and he actually kills a guy, and so it's like a really big kind of deal, and so Loki was understood to be the 13th dinner guest, and that he was unlucky. So you might be saying, what does that have to do with, like, Christianity? Well. Um, uh, as time went on, historians and theologians kind of realized that, oh, wait, Christianity has its own dinner that the 13th guest was the unrighteous betrayer. And so they associated the number 13 with Judas at the Last Supper because he was, out of the, all of them, there was the 12 righteous and then there was that one 13th troublemaker. So that's where that comes from. But now there's not actually anything unlucky about the number 13, right? Actually, someone approached me in between the first service and the second service and said, you won't believe this. Um, My birthday is on the 13th day of the month that I was born in, and um, we're gonna go to this next part. The last three digits of my phone number are 666. Mm. Ooh, that's trouble. In fact, I wanna tell you a story about 666. Um, One time I was at McDonald's, and I had ordered some combo meal or something, and I was at the counter, and this ni- the nicest older lady was up there checking me out. And she rings me up and she goes, mm-mm, no, baby, no, mm-mm. <laughs> and starts doing something, and I'm like, what's going on? Why? <laughs> Am I like, is my card declined or something? And she goes, uh no, that's bad. And then so my total had come out to $6.66. And she was like, mm-mm, not today, no siree. Get thee behind me, Satan! And so she actually gave me a discount, and so my total was six dollars and sixty-five cents. And so, um, and in case you don't know, the number six-six-six actually comes from the Bible, and it's in the Book of Revelations, and it's the number of the beast that's meant to mark the Antichrist and the end of times, and all that good stuff. I'm not qualified to go into that, and in fact, a lot of scholars are still just debating what on earth that actually means. But we know it's bad, and even non-Christians will say, like, oh, there's something about that number I don't like. And so uh, that's kind of kind of rooted its way into our culture. That six 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 is bad, and that th- the number thirteen, and that um, all this stuff. Or one time um, when I was I went to Georgia State University for a while in downtown Atlanta, and um, I was walking along the sidewalk, and um, it just so happens that that very day my mom was having spinal surgery, and I couldn't help but giggle at the fact that I'm walking down a sidewalk, and I realized that I am avoiding stepping on the cracks. Do you guys know that one? You step on a crack and what happens? Break mom. You break your mama's back. And I'm like, I don't believe in this. But you know, <laughs> why, why chance it, right? Um, so there's superstitions, right? And the thing about superstitions is even if we don't believe in them, even if we're smart enough to know that superstitions really don't have any legitimacy, sometimes we live and act like we do believe in them, right? Um, sometimes they're so deeply rooted and for some people, they really do believe in superstitions. They say, listen, I don't have proof of this, but I just know I get this feeling, right? I, I feel different when it comes to this superstition. And so those things are deeply held beliefs, and you know, I don't begrudge you for that. But um, today in the Gospel of John, we're going to be talking about a specific superstition that a group of people had and how Jesus stepped in the midst of that and kind of rocked their world a bit. So today... Um, We're going to be going through John chapter 5, and we're going to go from verse 1 to verse 16, all right? And so if you want to follow along on the screen, it'll be there, but I'm going to read the whole passage out loud, and then we're going to kind of go backwards and walk our way through it, okay? So this is uh, John chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches, Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. So, verse five, uh, one of the men there, uh, one of the men lying there, had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, he knew he had been ill for a long time and asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They say to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law does not allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, get up, take up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something else worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. So, you might have noticed a couple things. One is, what really does that have to do with superstition? Because the man was healed, right? Um, But then also, too, if you had a keen eye and you were following along, you might have noticed something interesting about that passage. You see, in uh, contemporary English translations of the Bible, John chapter 5 goes from verse 3 to verse 5. skips over 4 entirely. We go 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7. So why is that? You see, here's a little bit of uh, potentially nerdy kind of Bible history. Um, So follow along with me for a minute. Um, So our first English translation of the Bible was the King James Version, right? We're familiar with the King James Version. It was written in the 16th century, so hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And when they were translating the Bible to English from the original languages, so Greek and Hebrew um, and uh, Aramaic, they had only so many copies they could work with and translate it into English, right? Um, That was 500 years ago. Since then, we found so many copies of these ancient documents, right? And some of these copies we found are older than the manuscripts that the translators of the King James Bible were using. And so now that we found older copies that are closer to the lifetime of Jesus when they were written, we consider those to be more legitimate. Um, And Actually, all of these new copies, none of them had John chapter 5, verse 4. So it's understood that at some point, somebody had written in the margins of a manuscript what ended up being verse 4, but they couldn't be verified as having been written by John, and so now they've kind of put them in the footnotes of Scripture rather than including them in there. Um, But it's interesting because that verse, verse 4, which was almost... sure not written by John. It was written by a transcriber probably in the margins. Um, That verse explains to us the superstition that is happening in the story. So I'd like to read it to you. Um, And of course, this is from the King James version because that's the only version we had that used that verse. So um, this is John chapter five, verse four. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So what does that mean? Let me let me contextualize and tell you the story. There's a pool outside of Jerusalem. It's a manufactured pool, and there are these five different kind of porches on it. So think docks, right? Um, Maybe there's steps into the water. We actually have archaeologists have found the location of this pool in Jerusalem. Um, and so it's super interesting. You can read all about that online if you'd like. But um, there's a pool there. And it is believed that every once in a while, this water will start bubbling up and maybe be stirred around a bit. And the, the culture, that, a- that area at that time, believed that what was happening was an invisible angel had come down and was stirring up the water. And the first person to jump into that water after the water started moving would be healed of whatever sickness they had, Right? And so what ended up happening were a lot of people in this, in this society believed that. And so all of the sick, all of the blind and the paralyzed and people with leprosy and all sorts of diseases would hang out around the pool at Bethesda just waiting for that water to bubble up. And when it did, it was a mad dash to the pool. And to whoever was going to be the first one in there, they were going to be healed of their sickness. So imagine like a piñata. Right? A piñata is hanging there, and then every once in a while, the kids are hitting the thing. And then as soon as that crack starts, and you see like, a little bubble gum thing fall down, it's a mad dash to jump in there, and whoever's going to get the most candy first. And it's all about speed, right? And so these people, these sick people, these paralyzed people, these blind people are sitting around this pool just waiting for the water to bubble up. Now, you know, we don't know. Had they ever actually seen anyone healed uh, in that pool? Probably not. Uh, have they had they seen an angel come down and actually bless the water by stirring it up it's not likely in fact maybe they understood this to be kind of a folklore thing maybe they understood it to be a superstition Um, we can't know for sure but you know these guys had nothing left to lose these were the bottom rung of society these guys were sick they were broken no one was going to give them the time of day and so they said you know what I don't know if I believe this, but what else, what other option do I have? You know, what what other choice can I make? Uh, And so I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait by this pool, and maybe, just maybe, there's some crazy thing out there that's going to heal me when I jump into this water, but I have to be in first. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with. That's the superstition of this story. Um, And so you can see how it, you know, we don't have a pool that we wait around and jump into, but you understand that, like, it's a superstition. We don't have really kind of evidence that there's anything true about the story. Um, and so we, we see that, right? We understand it. Um, and so there's three points that I want to pull out of the text here today. Um, and we're going to go through them one by one and kind of walk back through like I had mentioned earlier. So uh, number one is that Jesus went to the pool, right? Uh, Jesus made the decision to go to the pool. He didn't hang out at the temple in this story and he didn't stay at the palace he went to where the need was right rather than seeing these sick people and dragging them to the holy temple he went to them and I think that is a big point that us here in church today can really grasp onto and wrestle with is saying are we trying to drag people to where we are or are we meeting them where they're at Right? Are we trying to bring people to church so professional Christians can minister to them? Or are we trying to minister to others? You know, the Great Commission says, go and make, not bring them here and let us take care of it. Right? And so let's keep that in mind. I think that should be the cornerstone of like our evangelism, right? is to say that, like, hey, listen, um, we want you to come to church. And we love, we, we love having this building full of people. But really, what we're all about is going and making not bringing and turning. Does that make sense? So that, that, that's one thing that we can see from this passage. Um, the second one is that it's related to the first. You know, Jesus went to the pool. And the second point is that Jesus went to the man, right? Jesus went to the man. The man wasn't seeking Jesus. In fact, when he's talking to him, he didn't even recognize who he was or what he was capable of. Um, Jesus went after him. Because you see, Jesus is a very personal savior, right? Uh, Will talked about from the stage just a few minutes ago how God is here with us. He's not out there somewhere, distant, right? And he doesn't just uh, manipulate and work in the world. He is in the world. And the way he is in the world right now is through his church. But um, back then, it was literally Jesus walking in the flesh. God went to the man. He's a personal Healer, and also, he's a personal savior, right? He knew why this man was paralyzed, um, and he knew every other thing that had ever troubled him. See, it's just like the story we talked about uh, earlier in this series with the woman at the well, right? Jesus went to her. Um, in her situation, she didn't think she could ever approach Jesus. She thought this: this is one; it's a man. Two; he's Jewish. Three, I have been caught in all sorts of sin. um, And that there's no way I could ever speak to Jesus. But Jesus went to her. The same thing is happening here in this text. Um, This man couldn't even stand up. He he couldn't even go to Jesus if he wanted to. Um, He's paralyzed and he's just waiting down by this pool that maybe someday he could be healed. But Jesus goes to the man. And see, this is bigger than just the fact that he is paralyzed. You see, in this culture... If you were sick, if you had some sort of ailment, um, that meant, uh, the belief was that you had sin in your life, right? If you were sick, then it was because God had, had, um, was punishing you for your sin. And if you thought about it and thought, well, I don't really have any kind of especially terrible sin, then it was something that your father did. And if you couldn't think of that, then it was something your grandfather did, right? Sickness was a punishment for sin, they believed. Now, on the other side of the Old Testament, you know, we understand that, you know, whether you are a great person or a terrible person, um, you know, whether you uh, are sick or well, then we all have sin, right? Like that's, it's, God doesn't work on like a karma system where, you know, you were bad, so bad thing. You were good, so good thing, right? It's like, we, we understand that now. But back then it was like, if I was sick, well, the only logical thing is that I had sin in my life. Um, and so this man, um, he, understood that his paralysis was the result of a sin. Do we know that's true or not? We can make assumptions, but I think that maybe there was sin in this man's life. I don't believe that God struck him with paralysis because he disobeyed. You know, God's not waiting with a lightning bolt ready to shoot you down when you misbehave. Um, But we can see here that there's a couple of things going on that lead us to believe that maybe, just maybe, this man Sometime in his past had dealt with a sin, and maybe that sin is what made him paralyzed in the first place. So, um, I'd like to read um, what uh, I'd like to read John chapter five, and then verses three and five um, to kind of show you um, where, where Jesus is coming from with this. So, this is starting at uh, verse three, and then we're going to skip that verse four. You know, that's kind of in the middle, and then do verse five. Um, crowds of sick people, lame blind or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Uh, One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. He'd been there waiting for those waters to bubble up for 38 years. There's a literary thing that's happening in this passage that actually connects to the Old Testament that's actually really amazing and really cool. Um, So how many of you guys know that in the book of Exodus, the main kind of story, the narrative there is that God is freeing the Israelites from Egypt and Moses is leading them away from it. We know that story, the whole let my people go, right? So um, after that, after they're led away from Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai where Moses receives the 10 commandments. And there at Mount Sinai, um, the Israelites partook in disobedience to God by worshiping the golden calf, right? Um, This is all in Exodus. Um, You can make a whole series on Exodus. so I'm trying to just run through it real quick. But after their disobedience, what happens next? God allows them to wander in the desert for 40 years, right? 40 years in the desert, wandering because of their disobedience. Um, actually, though, if we examine the book of Numbers and break down what's happening during those 40 years, yes, they spent 40 years in the desert. That's true. But actually, two of those were spent at Mount Sinai, in God's favor. And so they were out of favor of God for 38 years. Who else found themselves out of favor of God for 38 years? The man at the pool at Bethesda. So the Bible is doing a literary picture here saying, hey, there's another story where people had fallen out of the favor of God for 38 years. This man had As well, And so I think it's really incredible to see that. So that leads me to believe that maybe this man had some kind of sin in his life that caused him to be paralyzed. It was a decision he made. Maybe this was a consequence of some poor decisions he made. Um, We don't know for sure. All we know is that he's paralyzed, and there's nothing he can do to remedy that. Um, We also can understand that Jesus... Um, is mentioning sin when he's talking to the man because after he spoke to the Jewish leaders and uh, Jesus found him outside the temple, um, this is what uh, this is what Jesus says to him. Um, let's see. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, "Now that you are well, now you are well. So stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you." So I don't think Jesus is threatening the man here, saying. All right, now that you're better, you better behave or else I'm going to get you. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he understood is that whatever made this man come into paralysis, right, if he goes back to that, then all of this is going to be for nothing. Jesus is saying, listen, you are healed now. This is a second chance. Please don't go back to your sin Because if you do, something worse might happen. That something worse could be death. It could be anything. But your sin brought you here. Please don't go back to your sin. This is repentance, right? Repentance is turning away from your sin and going the other direction. Jesus is saying, don't go back to that thing that hurts you. How many of us know, maybe we understand that we have a particular sin in our life that we struggle with, and then maybe there's a breakthrough, you know, Um, Maybe, you know, as a teenager, we were at a youth event, and we're like, I'm never sinning again. And then like a week and a half later, it's like, maybe just a little bit, (laughs) you know. like We we turn back pretty easily. And Jesus is saying, listen, sometimes sin has consequences. And if you go back to that thing that destroyed you, it could be even worse next time. That's what he's saying, right? So we, we see that, you know, Jesus isn't threatening him. But Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I've healed this physical thing about you. But really what I'm here to do is I'm here to heal the spiritual, right? Jesus did not come just to heal the sick and the blind and and the physical wounds that people had. But Jesus came to change the heart more than the physical body, more than the mind, more than the emotions. Jesus came to change the heart because he knew that the heart was the center of the entire issue. That, this, that once the heart was changed, then the physical things would change, and then the mental things would change, and the emotional things would change. Once you change the heart, everything else flows from that. In fact, the, uh, the writer of Proverbs tells us this in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart carefully because your life flows from it. Jesus understood this. He said, listen... I'm here to heal your heart, and once I do, don't go back to that thing that is breaking your heart. Um, And, you know, we have, all of us have either sin or we have something in our past, maybe, maybe in our present. Um, And if not, you'll have something in your future that is going to wound you, right, that is going to hurt. Um, Maybe someone has done something incredibly unspeakable to you in the past. Maybe someone has hurt you in ways that we can't, that no one else could really understand or maybe you're hurting yourself maybe you're involved in something that is just deteriorating you and and wrecking you from the inside right and maybe those things have physical manifestations right maybe maybe something happened to you in your past and the way it manifests now is like anxiety maybe maybe uh a post traumatic stress thing is happening and and you just can't get above it, or maybe um, you have a substance abuse problem and you're turning to alcohol or drugs, or maybe you're you've gotten wrapped up into pornography or something like that. all of these things you know they might have these physical things that are happening, but really, at the core of it, we need healing from the deepest wound that we have, and that deep wound is separating us from God and you see. We know that Jesus is the healer because we've seen it in Scripture, and we've seen it in real life. Today, George talked about the just. Uh, there's no other word for it, but the miracle that Sean has gone through in this past month. We've seen God heal our friends. Um, we've seen God not just heal the physical things of our friends, but deliver our friends and maybe our family and maybe ourselves from these things. We know that God heals. You know, he's not just a he, he's not just a solution to our problems. Right? And he's not, he's not a prescription that you take to get better. And he's not a technique for wellness. He's alive and he's real and he's here and he's changing hearts and he's healing these wounds. But we have to let him. And have—and we also have to meet him on his terms. He's not somewhere we can go to just for advice. right? He's not the counselor that we can call up once in a while and be like, Hey, I'm really having a hard time today. When I'm having a good day, I don't really need you, but today is really tough. What what should I do, Jesus? Like, that's not what he's here for. Jesus is a personal savior, right? The woman at the well we talked about says, There was a man here that knew everything I ever did, knew everything about me. See, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows your hurts. You know, whether those are physical things, whether you are battling something with emotions or a a mental health. Um, a mental health issue or maybe someone has hurt you bad in the past maybe someone's hurting you in the present maybe you're you're hurting yourself somehow Jesus knows all of this and it doesn't surprise him uh, and he is telling you here today and every day let me heal those wounds that you have because only he can only he can uh, my third point um, and when I mention that Jesus is a savior, I really do mean that. Um, and he is a savior, but he's not your partner, right? Um, now, okay, I haven't really been out in the parking lot when there's a bunch of people here, because normally I'm upstairs doing video stuff or maybe down here. Um, so I haven't really seen this. And so if I'm talking about you, please understand that I'm not singling you out and making fun of you, because I haven't, I- I'm not sure. But who remembers the bumper stickers from the late 90s, early 2000s that say, God is my co-pilot? We've seen that? We remember that? Like I said, if you have one of those on your car right now, I'm not making fun of you, I promise. But um, here's the thought. If God is just your co-pilot, then maybe it's time you switch seats. If God is your co-pilot, maybe it's time you give him the wheel rather than having him be your backup right? Rather than trying to solve all of your problems yourself, maybe it's time you switch control and the lordship over your life to Christ. If Jesus is just a support beam for you, then maybe it's time you analyze who the foundation is in the first place. If Jesus is just your backup, then maybe it's time to realize who you've made the lord of your life. Is it you and Jesus is there to just support you? How messed up is that? How how crazy is that to say that Jesus is there and exists to support me? You know, Jesus is Lord, and if we make him Lord of our lives, then we're going to give him control, and we're going to turn things over to him. And you see, sometimes we try to fit Jesus in a little box. Sometimes those boxes are about superstition, right? Sometimes they're these old deeply rooted religious things that maybe we don't understand, but you know, what else can we do? You know, we try to put Jesus in boxes. And the man here at the pool is doing just that, right? He's paralyzed. He can't move. Jesus comes up to him, and Jesus says, Do you want to be well? And the man says, Of course I do. That's why I'm here. But I don't have anyone to pick me up and carry me down to the pool. As if he's asking Jesus, hey, can you pick me up and carry me to the pool when the water's stirred up, I'll have an advantage. Then I'll get there first and I'll be healed. Jesus, can you heal me in the way that I want to be healed, please? Can you follow my plan? And then maybe I will come out on the other side victorious. And it's like, we try to do that all the time. We ask Jesus, Lord, this is what I think is best for my life. Can you, can, and I'm going to try to fit you into my plans. Can you maybe squeeze in there wherever you can find a place? And it's like, That's so wrong, that's so far away from the truth. You see, when we put Jesus first, when in all of our ways we acknowledge him, he will make straight our paths. The Bible promises us that. So we need to stop trying to put Jesus in these little boxes and try to get him to fit our schedule and our desires and solely rely on him. See, the man was stuck in the framework of his culture, right? He believed, maybe he didn't, but maybe he did believe the superstition that the water was going to heal him. And he was so entrenched in the way that he understood things that he didn't notice the Messiah standing right beside him, offering him wellness. When we try to put Jesus in a box, we, we kind of take away lordship from him. We, take, we, don't under, we don't get to see him work in the kind of power that Jesus wants to work in. Right, um, and we all have sinned. Right, we we all you know a lot of us have physical ailments and a lot of us have emotional things that we deal with or maybe mental health. But all of us have a spiritual wound, every single one of us. And that spiritual wound is sin, and it's what separates us from God. Right, we all have a sickness that we can't do anything to heal. We all have a problem that there's no cure that we can come up with. That we can fix, the cure is a relationship with Jesus, and because of our sin, we're separated from God. But Jesus is saying, "Listen, let me embrace you. Let me pull you close. Let me be the solution to your problem." A lot of you guys know, um, late last month and into the first two weeks of this month, I, I had COVID. Uh, I was I was pretty sick. Um, it didn't strike me as bad as as some, um, but you know, it certainly wasn't. It wasn't a fun time. Um, in fact, one of the hardest parts about COVID was being isolated, was being quarantined, right? And not, not just a little bit, but like quarantined, quarantined, right? Um, I live by myself, you know, um, I'm not married, I don't have any kids, um, and so I was, I don't even have any pets, right? I have a plant that sits in the windowsill that I water every three days, that's, that is the relationship in my house, right? <laughs> um, so I am by myself here, and when I was sick, I was like locked down for two weeks, did not leave the house, and it was tough, Right? Every once in a while, um, my parents would come by um, to see how I was doing and to drop groceries off, but I had to stand on the other side of my glass storm door at my front door, and they'd come up with groceries, and it would be like, hey, uh, thanks for coming. And they'd be like, are you okay? And I'd be like, I'm fine. And so uh, it, it was awful, right? These people that loved me were here to see me, um, but I, I, I couldn't embrace them. I couldn't get close to them. And I wasn't close. And there was still this separation that was up. And it's not the same, right? I, I can see them. I can see them working on my behalf. I can see them ready to bless me with, you know, Gatorade and groceries and stuff. But, like, I can't embrace them. And I'm not close to them. And it was, and it was hard, right? And, I, you know, being away from my family and my friends during that time is tough. And I, I just can't help but feel like maybe that's how we are with Jesus today. Maybe we can see him. We believe in him. We're seeing him right here. We're seeing him work in our lives. And maybe we see his arm full of blessings ready to give us, and that's all we really want, but we still have something separating us from him. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's decisions we've made. Maybe it's bitterness towards somebody or something. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a drug Maybe it's a combination of those things, but whatever it is, we have not taken that step to say, Jesus, please be the Lord of my life. I wonder how many of us in here are dealing with something like that. I wonder how many of us in here could say, "I actually, I've believed for a long time. You know, I have no doubt that God exists, but I've been keeping him at arm's length because of this thing that's separating us. Jesus wants to come in and change that. He wants to heal that wound, right? The the superstition of the man sitting by the pool saying, those waters are going to heal me someday. They just got to bubble up. I'm just waiting for that day to happen, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but what else do I have to lose? See, Jesus is saying, I am that water that will cure you. I am that water that will cleanse you. When you drink of me, you will never be thirsty again. We talked about Jesus being that living water, that moving, that healing that life-giving and life-changing water that when we submerge ourselves into Christ, that is when healing comes and we don't have to wait for the waters to bubble up because they're roaring, they're alive, they're living, they're moving right now. You just have to go to them and drink. All it takes, all it takes is a decision to pursue Jesus because he's already pursued you. I didn't mention this in the first service but there's a famous painting um, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel creation of Adam where and I know Kevin has actually talked about this from the stage before um, where it's a painting of God and Adam and Eden and God is stretching out his finger to Adam right and his finger is, is long and it's, and it's rigid and it's pointing to Adam and Adam is pointing back up to God but his is kind of limp and his is kind of his, his is kind of Curved like this. And the image is that God has already reached as far as he can to you. There's nothing else God can do, but if Adam would just lift his finger a bit more, he would connect with the Almighty. And that's what I feel like we have. Adam sees God and he knows God, but he's not making that connection because there's still something separating him. And we know that that is sin. You see, Jesus is that metaphorical water, that spiritual water that will quench the thirst and that will change your life, and that will heal your wounds. Uh, Here in the church, in Christianity, we have an ordinance. We have a tradition that we do that literally uses water to paint that picture. It's baptism, right? Baptism says, hey, I am associating public with Jesus in that I am buried in these waters and raised to walk a new life with him. And those are the literal waters. that we. There's nothing magical about them, right? we don't have, there's nothing superstitious about baptism. You know, uh, the waters that we use here, they come from a hose in the back and we put them in a pool we ordered out of a catalog, right? Like there's nothing magical about them, but it changes everything. It changes you because that's the first step in obedience to Christ is saying, hey, I'm going to associate with him. And this is the pool, right? This is the pool. There's no superstition to it. All I know is that I was dead in my sin and Jesus raised me up. I had a wound that could not be healed and Jesus healed me. I was blind and now I see. And so if you haven't made that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, or maybe you kind of have, but you're still keeping him at arm's length, like I said, or maybe you've done that but you've never taken that first kind of step in obedience and baptism. I just encourage you to talk to myself or someone on our leadership because we would love to share with you what it means moving forward in a relationship with Jesus. We would love to share with you what it means to be baptized and we would love to talk to you about how God has changed our lives. Um, There's an app on my phone. Um, I'm not on Facebook uh, right now. Um, Hopefully never again. I'm so sick and tired of Facebook. (laughs) Um, But I have uh, Amazon photos on my phone, which is where it's just an online cloud service that you can store photos on. Um, and inside, of, I don't know if you know this, but inside of photos, there's like some metadata that says when the picture was taken. And so like it'll be like, hey, you know, three years ago, you had a waffle and took a picture of it. And so don't you want to be reminded of that waffle that you ate? Like, I know Facebook does the same thing, and that's why I'm bringing Facebook up. But it's like they're memories, right? Um, Amazon popped up the other day and said, hey, here's a photo of a memory from 16 years ago. I'm like, 16 years ago? I didn't even have an account then. And so what Amazon was actually doing was looking at the date inside the data of the photo. And what that photo was, was me at a Disciple Now event 16 years ago last night. And at that Disciple Now event 16 years ago last night, I made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. I knew about him. I knew a lot about him. I grew up in the church, went to Awanas, did Bible camp. Uh, Easter and Christmas were not about Easter, Bunny, and Santa. They were about Jesus. I knew all of that. We had Bibles. I had a little picture Bible, and we had a big old Bible that sat in the living room. I knew it. I knew all about Jesus. But it was at the age of 14, 16 years ago, that I realized that I didn't know him. If you would want to be introduced to him today, someone in this room would be happy to do that for you. And like I said, if you are interested in moving into the covenant of baptism, we would love to walk you through that as well. We all have a wound. We all have sin. We are all in desperate need of healing. Whatever that is for you today, I know the answer. I know the cure. And it looks a little bit different for everybody, but at the end of the day, that cure's name is Jesus Christ. And that's all there is to it. You just have to reach out and make that connection he's already done all the reaching. You just have to accept that free gift that he has for you. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.